Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you willing? Hey gents. Welcome to another episode of Apex Masculinity, a high-performance men's coaching outfit designed to help you show up strong in every area of life. Raising the bar in fatherhood, marriage, finance, business, health, and all things manly. Gentlemen, let's begin. Hey, gents, welcome back to Apex Masculinity. You're in the right place. I'm your host, Nick Chantos. Something a little different today, guys. Rather than having a guest on the show or me monologuing myself, I was given the opportunity to be a guest on health, life, fitness, nutrition coach John McLernan's podcast, The Before and After. And he was gracious enough to send me the link so that I could upload it to my podcast. And I wanted to share that with you guys. So enjoy. A moment. <laughs> All right, we are live. Welcome to the first episode of what I'm calling now Between the Before and After, the stories that shape us. I have uh, an incredible gentleman with me on this broadcast today, Nick Chantos, and he's got a heck of a life story. And you know what, the things that he, he went through, especially in his formative years, are part of the reason why he's doing what he's doing today. And so without further ado, uh, let's dive into Nick's story. Welcome to the show, Nick. Hey, thanks, bro. I appreciate you having me. It's an honor. Yeah. So now you are a, a published author, um, which I, I have a copy of your book, and I, I've done, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I've started having to read through it, um, as well as a, a life coach with your company known as Apex Masculinity, and you're also a podcast host. Yes, that's correct. Yep. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. But it, But it wasn't always like this for you. No, no. Actually, if we go back to the beginning... Uh, like we were kind of discussing in our warm-up chat there, there was yeah. um, a lot of child abuse and childhood trauma. And it almost feels weird even saying it, John, like like I'm hurting my parents' feelings or I'm betraying them by even mentioning it. But when I look at the way that I raised my kids today, I cannot even fathom how my parents um, did some of the stuff that they did. Um, like, you know, I asked myself, like, how could you do that to another human being, you know, but um, it was just me and my mom for the first few years. And then my mom met my stepfather when I was yeah. four, and he came into the picture. And, you know, he was a 70s hippie, I guess, if you had to classify him or whatever, but very tyrannical, very uncontrolled with his temper and his his rage and his words. And I think yeah. the words sometimes were even more damaging than the hands, you know, and there was a lot of um, just demoralizing things that left you feeling, you know, unloved, unvalued, unsupported, unbelonging, you know, not a part of the family dynamic. And for a while, my mom was kind of pained by it, you know, you could tell it bothered her, but eventually I became the black sheep, so to speak. And uh, okay. my mom kind of assumed that same role of just dumping all of her garbage onto right. me too, you know. Did you do you have any siblings? Yeah, I got two half sisters with my stepfather and two half sisters with my biological father as well. Okay. Yeah. And where uh where where do you fall in terms of age with your siblings? I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. Yes, sir. And so you you were you were the first one and and um yeah. So did any of your other siblings that, that you're aware of suffer uh, abuse similar to this or was this, uh, or were you just like the one that, that was on the receiving end of all of it because you were, you were male? Um, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know if it's cause I was male or if I don't know if it's because I wasn't his and maybe I was like an inconvenience to this new family that he was trying to build or whatever, but definitely they did not receive. And I'm thankful that they didn't any of the garbage that I had to go through. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> You know, and I, you know, for anybody listening, I, I'm like, I guess we should have thrown up a bit of a trigger warning here because we are talking about some really, really difficult topics that maybe people might feel triggered to to hear about. But um, I think it's also important to be able to tell these stories because um, th th this is also meant to be a story of hope, and there there's definitely some hope at uh, 
at, at the end mm -hmm. of the story. Um, but you have to go through some dark places to get there. So um, how, if I could ask, how, sort of how frequent was it, were you on the receiving end of abuse? Was this like once a week? Was this a daily thing, multiple times a day? Or, or what was this like? No, I wouldn't say multiple times a day. Um, gosh, man, that's 30 some plus odd years ago to try to quantify that in a time frame of how often would be difficult. But I remember them being epic, like one time, and I talk about it in the book, how even today, if someone walks up on me in a dark room while I'm sleeping, um, I come awake in a half lucid state and I don't know where I am and I don't know who's in the room with me and I have these panic attacks where I start screaming and cussing and crying in an attempt to try to fully wake myself up. But, you know, like I remember my mom throwing my stuff in a suitcase one time when I was like eight years old and throwing me in the suitcase out on the porch. And, you know, I remember my dad um, just, you know, picking me up and throwing me, you know, over the top bunk of my bunk bed and uh, smacking the light off and then reaching up and smacking me in the face and sending me to school with a black eye. And, you know, another time in particular, man, he was um, going through a divorce with my mom. And like back, I, I, like I couldn't connect the dots then that all of that oh, yeah. was just them venting their frustration at their botched, inadequate lives that they were going through onto the, on, and I became like a focal point for it. But I remember him like having one hand around my throat and the other hand was like holding an expensive vase, like brandishing it like that was the weapon of execution coming down and screaming through seething teeth that I was hated and should be killed. And, you know, there were good moments. I mean, I can't lie and say like we never went camping or we never threw the football or whatever like that. So it wasn't like this constant thing. But when it would happen, brother, it was yeah traumatic for sure. Well, no kidding. And, and that, that would be actually incredibly confusing as well. If there, it, it, I mean, and maybe he had a, had a split personality or something that, it, you know, but it, you know to to have moments like that that are absolutely terrifying and then to have these strange moments where you know it seems like things are peaceful and maybe things are going to be different this time and you know maybe now he's going to be he's going to be nice to me or something like that or um sure but but i wonder if there was always like hanging over your head like um you know, it doesn't matter how, how nice it feels right now i don't i don't know when the next one's coming yeah no there was always that let's be on edge and you know it, it's funny how a young child who would have no interest in something like this but because of survival immediately becomes an avid student of mannerism, body language, speech patterns, tone of voice, and situational awareness as a seven-year-old child. Because the minute any of that changes, we go into survival mode. Like we're looking for another place to be, you know what I mean? So um, yeah, definitely would keep a person on edge at not knowing if we're dealing with Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde at the moment kind of a thing, you know? So then, um, you know, you, you were obviously going to school um, at this time and you were living in, in the state of Texas. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And you, and you were you were um, you were you were going to school. Hey, thank you, Leon, for letting me know. Leon says my audio is very weak, so I'll, I'll try and make sure I speak a little more directly into the microphone here. Um, anyways, yeah. So you, you were going to school um, at the same time. Uh, did you ever have to kind of explain that uh, to, to anybody what was going on, like if you had bruises and things like that? No, at, oddly enough, it was almost like uh, like you would think someone, <clears throat> excuse me, like a child advocate would see that and start asking questions, but there was never any of that. And I ended up going into like a special education class for kids that were like <clears throat> ADHD or highly rambunctious or just not put together in their brains, right? And of course, looking back now, I can totally see that a lot of that trauma like, re like really affected the wiring in my head. No and uh yeah school was just just as much of a nightmare as as home was really you know yeah and and you know i you know i don't know if we you know if a lot of other teachers wouldn't even know how fully to to deal with something like this let alone you know and then maybe you're this unruly kid did you um find yourself uh getting into fights as a kid um were you kind of lashing out other people in response to to what had happened to you actually the fights were few and far between. There was a few of them. And I think why there weren't more of them, John, to be honest, is the demoralizing it caused a, a, a sense, a lack of self-confidence in myself to where I was afraid for any kind of confrontation. You know what I mean? Okay. But, but every once in a while, you'd find yourself in a situation where someone's just coming at you and it's do or die. It's time to go. Right, you know yeah. what I mean? And, um, yeah, 
So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, all, and all the, the tragedy of all of this is that this is happening, you know, at a time when your brain is going through all of these developmental stages, and it's, um, you know, we know looking back, this is setting you up for some serious struggles going through adulthood as well because of the time in your life that it's that is happening to you. Um, mm-hmm. And so at, at a certain point in time, you started um, turning to drugs. And how old were you when that when that was happening? 12 years old. I remember being in junior high and uh, I was so I, I had moved from one junior high school to another to follow that special education class that I was in. And I was starting mid-year. And I remember having such anxiety about going to school that first day because I was like the new kid. I had to walk into a class with people I didn't know. And I just remember getting to school, waiting for the bus to leave, and then just leaving the school. And back behind our junior high school, there was this huge canal. And I just said, I'm going to go hide out there and I'm not even going to go to school. Like I just did not have the courage to go to school that day. And while I was down there, there were some older kids, some seniors. So I was probably, um, well, I guess it'd be middle school. So they were either eighth or ninth grade. I was like sixth or seventh, but there were some older kids down there, about three or four of them. And these were kids that grew up in projects, you know, definitely single parent homes, lower socioeconomic status, if you would. And they were down there smoking weed, you know, getting high. And I walked up on them. And and if we can be really transparent, really honest, and not like pulling punches here, like, El Paso, Texas is a like predominantly Hispanic town. So right, like yeah. white, like lankly, lanky, pimply faced white kids that look like Kurt Cobain from Nirvana. You know what I mean? Already, <laughs> yeah. already have the deck stacked against them. You know what I mean? But I walked down there and they were these older Cholo gangbangers, these like Hispanic gangbanger gangster guys. And I right, thought, yeah. great. Now, now what's going to happen? You know what I mean? I'm down here in <laughs> yeah. this ditch. Nobody can see, you know, you know, and, uh, this these guys were actually cool with me man they're like ah what oh come on over here man i went over there (laughs) they fired up a joint and i took a couple drags and i remember john instantly no pain no agony up here like i had altered my reality to a place where i was not thinking about worried about concerned about home school image any of that stuff and i found a new friend no kidding and Yeah. And, and not only that, you found like this place of acceptance, like, which is yep. really, you know, so, so many things coming together to really, really set you up. So it started with weed. Was, was there, was there more? Um, not at that point, I would say, because right about that time is where I started um, going to juvie. So I had a couple knucklehead friends that were in that same special ed class with me for behavioral issues. And we would, we ended up living in the same neighborhood about maybe 12 blocks from each other. And we would hang out, go ride skateboards and steal spray paint from my dad's shed and go like spray paint, you know, in the ditches and whatnot. And we started committing crimes and doing beer runs and, you know, stealing from stores, uh, alcohol and different things like that. But we ended up going to juvenile and spent a lot of time there so there really wasn't like serious blocks of time so i really didn't get any of the harder stuff until after i had got out of the texas youth corrections institute which is the texas prison for juveniles and that was about 16 and that's where some of the more harder uh drug usage drug harder drugs came into play in my life so then, yeah, and I'm, I'm a bit curious about this, uh, going into sort of a youth correctional facility. Um, is it anything like we see portrayed, you know, in the media or, or, or anything like that? Um, is, is it, or is that very much like a glorified thing? Like, is, is it a rough place or was it a rough place back then? Or were, was there fairly strict order? Um, yeah. and, you know, and, I think, well, what did your parents think about it too, I guess? Well, you know, the first time it's like, leave, leave him in there so he can learn a lesson. And I'm like, thank you for leaving me in here. Cause I don't want to go home. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, like okay. one of them deals. This is a good trade-off, you know, but I learned a few things in that place. One, nobody was hitting me there. Nobody was yelling at me there. Nobody was like on edge or, you know, there was no reason to, um, be fearful. And another thing I learned in that place was, the one resounding commonality between every person in that place among all socioeconomic and racial lines was a toxic family structure. A lack, an apparent and conspicuous lack of masculine, positive masculine role model influence. Right. So 
one, one way or another, whether it was abuse or, or neglect, there was, or, or just complete absenteeism in terms of fatherhood. Yep. You know, all, all of these, because I'm, I, I guess if you're in a youth correctional facility, it's going to be like an all, all male facility. Obviously, there's not like mixed, mixed prisoners or anything like that. Right. So that's correct. Yeah. Every, every one of them is lacking like any sort of strong male figure. Um, so how do you, how do you pass the days when you're in a juvenile correction center? What do you do? Well, if you can imagine, um, maybe like a, an octagon, like a stop sign. Mm -hmm. And that's the central guard station. And then there's hallways that come off of that. And so you, you're in a hallway, you're either an A wing or B wing or whatever. And there's five rooms on one side of that hallway, five rooms on another. They're all single man rooms. Anyway, they, you know, they they don't, they don't put people together or anything like that for liability issues for that age group. But you get up in the morning, you come outside and eat breakfast. They turn the TV on and throw a couple decks of cards out on the tables. And that's your life. You know what I mean? If you're lucky, you get to go to the gymnasium once or twice a week for an hour to play some basketball or whatever, but basically tell stories and watch TV and play cards. Right. So was there any kind of education taking place as well or not in the juvenile detention center? That's kind of where you're just waiting to be tried or charged with your right, crime. Okay, but yeah, once, yeah. One, but, but if you're talking about actually going to the Texas youth corrections or, you know, uh, yeah, Texas youth corrections prison. Yeah. Things change there. There's classes, there's weekly meetings, there's little huddles where we get around in a circle and talk about our problems and, um, they did actually help me get my GED there. But you can imagine the level of pride that is going on in that place when they do a group, you know, intervention thing. Like everybody's like, whatever, you know, what's this? Right, we don't right, have time yeah, for yeah. this, you know, because we can't be transparent and vulnerable at that age. We got to be machismo and, you know, oh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. But uh, no, I remember being in some riots and watching 30 very angry young men like attack guards and flip tables and throw televisions and break windows. And that was an eye-opening experience. Like this, the prison system in America is not for rehabilitation. Right. Yeah. You, you were witnessing like the rage of, of like broken, angry young yes. men. Yes. In and real it had, time. It had, to, it had to boil over at some point. Did you and did you feel like an outside observer or did you end up participating in this stuff or, or what was and, happening there? Ah, uh, you know that like, I'll be honest with you, man. Like I had a lot of pent up rage myself, you know, and never wanted to like start an issue like that. But once it kicks off and it's already going, you know, like the riot just pulls you in, you know what I mean? And yeah, yeah. And there's, it, there's group, group energy there, man. It kind of felt nice to flip a table and, and, and be stupid for a little bit, you know, as a 16 year old kid, but yeah so yeah and and so you're kind of in and out of this sort of juvenile um correction path i guess for for 12 to till you're 17 i guess right and, and somewhere in there you managed to get some kind of education do, do you have like much contact with your parents during this time or like when you're when you're in and out um like do your parents come to visit you when you're in there or what was that like no 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 yeah especially um the Texas Youth Correction Facility was in Brownsville, Texas, or Brownwood, Texas. So, I mean, Texas is huge. Like, um, yeah. it's so it would have been like two days drive to get there. But no, they never came and saw me when I was in juvie. One time, I remember I was in a, I was in a six month lockdown facility in El Paso called Crossroads, and I was just so broken, man. Like, I was one of two white kids in there and getting picked on all the time, and you know, like the staff members, there was, there was no help there. Like everything at home sucked, like everything. And I remember cutting my wrists and my dad, he came and saw me, man. And like, he wanted to see the wounds. And I, I think he felt, I think he felt bad. You know, I'd like to think that he felt bad about my situation, but it was a 15 minute visit, you know, and I didn't see him again right, for yeah. months and months and months, you know. And, and to clarify, when you say your dad, are you referring to your stepdad or your biological father? Right. My stepfather. So my biological yeah, yeah. father is not even in the picture until like I get into my twenties and I went, I ended up like wanting to track him down, but he was like a former meth addict and ended up like just, uh, basically smoking himself to lung cancer and dying in his forties kind of a thing, you know? Yeah. So there wasn't any reciprocation from that path either, but yeah, I mean, my stepdad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at some point there was like, uh, there was an element of humanity to your stepfather. He wasn't just like entirely a monster, but he had all of these, and you can probably look back now and maybe reflect on it and realize that he had all of this. He was a tortured individual. Mm -hmm. 
Anyways. Yeah, no, I believe that. I believe that because, like, especially as you get older, you know, that's when you start realizing, damn, I haven't been the best person, you know. But yeah. um, even today, though, John, like, I would forgive and move on and patch up in a heartbeat. But there's no, it just doesn't seem like there's any desire on that end to entertain or maintain a relationship. And I'm getting to the point now in my life where I've got my own wife, I got my own kids, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I'm not, I don't want to beg anybody for their time. I don't want to beg anybody for their love, but there are still days even today, John, where I wish I had that. I wish I would have had it. And I wish I had it today, right. a healthy, vibrant relationship with a father that doesn't have to be perfect, but it's there. You can go to them and get counseling, get mentorship, you know, have a friendship with your father yeah. kind of a thing. And it's gone. And I've never, ever had that. And, you know, I tell, I tell my wife this, and I, I touch on it in the book that I'm the best thing I can do out of that situation is leverage that tragedy of a toxic relationship with my father and use it as fuel to launch me into being or attempting to being the best father that I can be today. You know, absolutely. Like trying, trying to break the cycle and not, not repeat the things that, that you, you lived through. And so if we, yeah, if we that's it. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go, Please. go for it, man. No, I was just going to say that is a chore in itself too, because you know what you don't want to be, right? You don't want to be right, the heavy handed yeah. abusive guy. So like, I find myself leaning way heavy these days of being way overly gracious. And every <laughs> once in a while, I'm like, you know, if I would have said to my parents, what you just said to me, I'd be looking for my teeth on the ground right now. And all you got was a day off from your Nintendo Switch, you know, or whatever, you know, and I'm like, right, yeah, trying not to err on either side too much, you know, is 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 a learning process, you know, because you want there to be boundaries and rules and respect and all that. But at the same time, you do not want to break a child because they yeah, will carry yeah. that brokenness into their adult life. And if it's badly broken, John, they will be a hot mess and waste so many years and opportunities. Yeah. And, and that, that's quite profound that you, you share that, you know, I mean, of course, I'm just very early into my journey of fatherhood. My, my mm -hmm. son is just eight months old, but you know, I think, I think so seriously about healthy masculinity and, and wanting right. to be a healthy masculine role model for him as well. And we're definitely going to dive into that here. But um, there, there's mm -hmm. sort, of, sort of one more section I want to, I want to chat about here in, in your past before we dive into okay. kind of what you're doing. Absolutely. Here. Is, Let's do it. You know, um, so you end up going to prison, adult prison, as you, as you called it, uh, at eight, 18 yes, years old. You know, um, right. what, what, led, what led you to that? So, you know, you've been in and out of juvie. It, it, it right. probably didn't, you know, the idea was it's supposed to somehow lead you to, to being corrected or, or something like that or getting you on the straight and narrow, but it didn't seem to work. Right. Right. So I won't, I, I'll try not to chase the rabbit trail. I'll try to condense the story. But yeah, when I yeah. got out of the juvenile, the ju, excuse me, the juvenile prison, they gave me my GED. It was one of them deals where they're like, like pancakes at McDonald's. Like they're just giving them away. They're like, these kids are never going to make any things of themselves. So here's a GED diploma. You don't have to right. finish high school anymore. So I got out at 16 and didn't have to go to school anymore. So I ended up getting a job. Yeah, right, I ended up getting yeah. a job at, yeah, at one of the local burger shops in town. And it was so cool. All my friends were still in school, you know what I mean? And I'm flipping burgers, making money, and this, that, and the other. And um, I, I I wasn't living right. You know, I was still yeah. smoking weed and drinking and stuff. But one night, this guy came through the drive-thru because it was a 24-hour uh, burger joint, if you will. Mm -hmm. And it was 2 a.m. And, and the bar, the bar crowd closes at 2 a.m. And they start looking for food. So this guy comes through the drive through and, uh, he gets orders his food. He pulls up. I'm using a, He was in this, this old beater, like painted bright orange truck. And he had two ladies with him in the truck and he was Mr. GQ. You could tell, right. He was the bar guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he leans in through the window and he's like drunk and he's like, bro, I don't, I don't have any money for the food but can I trade you some cocaine for my food? And I had never tried cocaine before. And I'm a 16 year old kid. And I'm like, yeah, we can make that happen, bro. So like <laughs> that, you know, wow. started, I, I got his number. I met him. Like I started buying massive quantities of cocaine from this guy. Cause obviously I'm working and I can. Right, and yeah. um, so I'm start. I'm, you know, I'm dealing Coke at 16 and 
you know, I take it home and I've got this big mirror and I'm weighing out, you know, bags and this, that, and the other. And the dirty little secret with those drugs, John, is that um, they're fun for a season, but a hook quickly gets set. And before you know it, you're not selling your drugs anymore. You're using them. And before too long, you're not, you're, you're, you're not selling and you don't have money and you're stealing now to get them. And you're, you know, doing things that you never would have thought you've done to get them. And one drug addiction turns into another. And before you know it, you are completely bound and fettered in chains. And uh, what started seemingly innocent ended up being a terrible, tragic curse upon my life that ended up leading me to adult prison and uh, at 18. And it was a I, I don't know if it was a pity thing or what it was, but they have this program where your first time they'll give you six months. All right. We're going right, to send you there yeah, for yeah. six months. They call it shock therapy is what they call it. So yeah. you go there for six months and boy, I tell you what, it was an eye opener for sure. I mean, it was an eye opener and I got out and there would be these moments, John, during all of this, even as an adolescent youth where I would be like, yeah. why am I doing this? And I would want to change but I was so entrenched in this um, self-loathing from what I went through with my family situation. Now you compile the addictions on top of that. And now I'm in this place so deep, stuck so deep that even though I want to change and want to get out, it's very difficult. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So that was the first run in prison. So you, uh, so you, you're, you're dealing Coke at 16. And are, were you living right. back at home again at this time? Yeah, I was at my parents' house at that time. They never found out. Uh, well, I, they I guess they would care. No, they didn't care. Is uh, and this is another thing where like, why? Like, how could you do that? You know. But like, my dad walked in the room one time, and I had a half ounce of coke on a mirror, and he he walked in and he looked and he just shook his head and closed the door and walked out. But I tell people jokingly, I had one of those families where I could be in the garage with my friends smoking crack. And not get in any trouble. But if the dishes weren't done when my mom got home, I was in trouble. You know what I mean? Kind of, I say that tongue in jest, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it was a weird fine, fine family situation for sure. But my dad used drugs, uh, you know, right, not yeah, as yeah. bad as I was, but it's almost like, how can you judge you know, when you went through that same thing kind of a deal? I don't know, but definitely not a good parenting strategy for sure. <laughs> so so you, you, yeah. you get, uh, you get picked up and you're, you're sent to, as you call adult prison here in Texas. Was that for, for drug dealing or was that for stealing or what was that? Uh, sentence for? No, no, that sentence was actually the culmination of, a uh, of, uh, what do they call that? A domestic issue between my father and I, where some rules were laid out and they weren't followed. So I'm kicking you out at 16 best of luck to you. And the next day in my anger, even though I was completely at fault, so to speak, in what I had done, I sure, broke, yeah, yeah. I broke back into their house, stole a bunch of stuff, you know, stereos, TVs, different things like that. And ended up going to the pawn shop with them to sell them to try to get money for drugs. And he pressed charges. So I actually picked up a breaking and entering charge at 17. This happened at 17. Right, and in yeah. Texas, you're an adult at 17. So here right. I'm going to county at 17. And so then, um, and I, I guess probably this isn't, isn't the hardest of the hard prisons. This isn't like a, you know, a supermax facility, but, uh, again, is this you know, anything like we see portrayed in the media or, or how, how did you, you know, cause now, now I guess you've been in and out of the juvenile correction facility or system. Right. Yeah. Now, now you're going to real prison, but you're, you're 17 years old. What's running through your head? Oh man. I tell you what, it, uh, again, another love hate relationship because, People that are angry like to hurt people. And at the original county jail in El Paso, there were no guards and no cameras like that had visibility to the cells. And I remember getting punched on and stomped on and taken advantage of. And again, I was just a scrawny little white kid, you know. But I also remember times where these gangbangers would come into my cell and it was very clear that it was fixing to get violent. And I would ask them individually. I remember this one time in particular, six guys rolled into my cell and one of them started talking to me and I knew where this was going. I could tell the body language and I asked him, I said, man, what gang are you from? And he tells me I'm with Southside Locos. And I said, oh man, do you know Shorty? Because I had done time with Shorty when I was a juvenile. And he's like, yeah, "Yeah, he's one of our veterans. I'm like, yeah, I did time with that guy, man, when I was a kid. And then I asked the guy next to him, hey, what gang are you in, bro? He said, I'm with, I'm with Nasty Boys. And I'm like, oh, man, you know Pelaton? And he's like, yeah. And I said, man, I did time with that guy when I was a juvie. And 
by the stroke of luck, John, I knew one person from every gang that each of those six guys were in. And when we were done, they all looked at each other like, oh, I guess this white boy's cool, you know, and they ended up just turning around and walking out. So it was like one of them deals where my past kind of saved me at that point. But prison, <laughs> I'm telling you what, man, you leave county jail handcuffed to another guy. And that's right, a deterrent. Yeah. That's a deterrent for running away. So like the fugitive movie with Harrison Ford, that's real. Right, yeah, you yeah. get yeah, you get handcuffed to another guy. And that bus ride from El Paso to the to the prison in, in Abilene, Texas is like a 10 hour drive. And if you got to use the bathroom, that guy's got to walk with you down the aisle of the bus and go to a, a urinal on the bus. And he's basically holding your hand while you use the bathroom. You know what I mean? And then when you get to the prison, you come off and it's not like military where guys are screaming at you. But I mean, it's very clear. You get inside this building, the cuffs come off, your clothes come off, you're standing there naked as the day you were born with 80 other guys that have come in on buses from all over Texas. They throw de-lousing powder on you to kill the lice. They take razors to your head. They shave. I mean, it's it's very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intrusive, so to speak, you know? And then you got to see a psychologist and you got to see a therapist and they're trying to figure out, you know, what are your charges? Are you violent offender? Are you sexually insane? Are you a repeat offender? You know, what, what, all these different things. And based on all that information, they decide which or which of the 112 prisons in Texas they're going to send you to do the remainder of your time. So okay. me just being like a petty, it was a class C burglary charge. I ended up going to a minimum security unit, but there are, but my, one of my good friends ended up going to a medium security unit. And right at that time, there had been a prison gang that started up that was from El Paso. So it was basically understood that when you got to any unit, if you were from El Paso, it was do or die. Like you were going to fight, you know what I mean? And I got into a couple scuffles. I tried to keep myself real low key. Um, I had kind of learned how to walk that life because of all the years of being in and out as a juvenile. You don't carry yourself as an arrogant man because no one likes that, but you don't carry yourself as a weak and timid man and make yourself a, a, a predator or, or, or a, a, a prey, prey for yeah. predator. You know, you just kind of walk a middle road. You know, don't look anybody in the eye, but at the same time, you know, you don't keep your head down like you're like some loathsome person. But the time passed and uh, I got out after the six months and ended up falling into prison again the second time because I didn't I didn't complete the parole, so to speak. I violated yeah, yeah, yeah. it. So here I am going back the second time. My son had just been born and he had just started learning how to laugh. And I remember being so happy and thinking, you know what, like, I got to get my act together, even though I have these warrants for my arrest and I'm kind of on the run. And I know, like, at some point I'm going to have to answer for this. Like, I need to be here. And I really enjoyed the fact that I was a father. And as fate would have it, I got pulled over for having mud on my license plate. And they, they said it's an obscured plate. And wow. they ended up, they ended up run, they ended up figuring out who I was. And here I am going to prison for the second time. And it was at that moment, I was like, something has to change. Like, I cannot, I cannot live the rest of my life like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious, you know, with the, with the internet and in, in the prison systems you, you went through, did you meet other people who, uh, other men, young men who were, who were kind of the same way? They're like, they felt stuck. Like, I don't want to do this, but I don't know any other way. Yeah. No, the dangerous thing with that is there were a couple of guys in there. You'd hear it in their, in their tone of voice and some of the things they'd say where they, they were like, fed up with the fact that they were stuck in this cyclical pattern of in and out, in and out. Right. But the dangerous part was the guys that you would meet that had become accustomed to it and had accepted it. Like this is the normal for me and I'm not even going to try to change myself. Like I will right, be yeah. this person for the rest of my life and um, I may as well just accept it. And for me, I was like, I, I, I had this much John left in me to say, I cannot resign myself to this life. And, uh, man, I started going to like jailhouse church meetings, um, started yeah. hanging out with more positive people like my entire life, John, this is to tell you how toxic I was and like how, 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 
down at the bottom I was from the first time I went to juvie and started learning about prison gangs and prison life. All my life, all I ever wanted to be was in the Aryan Brotherhood. Because oh, when you yeah. when you when you are a toxic person and you come from a family where there's no love, no support, no validation, and no acceptance, those are human needs. We need those things as people to live, to thrive, to survive. And the one thing that would happen, and I'd do time with these kids, and then they'd go home, and I'd go home, and I wouldn't see them again. But we would form these bonds. Even though we were broken, toxic people, there was acceptance and what appeared to be love and support because we're all in this together, and I got your back, and you got my back, and you form these bonds with people. And for me, the Aryan Brotherhood was like the ultimate peace de resistance. Like you arrive at this well-respected prison group of men that you know, are in charge and they, you know, they got it under control and you finally get to the place of respect and you have your, your, your tribe, so to speak. And I remember after having that wake up moment and just wanting to do my time and get out. And I was going to the, like I said, those church meetings, I was reading a lot of books. I was trying to sort through some things on my own, basically. And the Aryan brotherhood came up to me and they're like, listen, man, we've been watching you and we like the way you carry yourself and we want to put you down. Like that means we want you to join the, join the family basically, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. And I remember that moment, everything slowed down. And I thought to myself, this is what you've wanted your whole life. And now here you are trying to change your life and look what shows up. And it was a hard choice. Yeah. It was one of those moments where it would have been so easy because all the other white guys, because white, if we can be transparent, white, 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 white folks in prisons are usually the minority. And right. that's because of socioeconomic stuff that you know, we can go on a deep rabbit show on all that. But anyway, like it, you, you're alone without a family in there. And I thought, man, this would, these guys would have my back. I would have their back. Nobody would mess with me. You know, it'd be safer like this, that, and the other. I'd be around a, a brotherhood of men that, that I had commonality with. And I stopped and I said, no, no, courage is doing the right thing even when it hurts and you don't want to. And that's yeah. hard, John. It's hard because it's it's a daily thing it's not even today it's not even so much that moment in prison it's today every day we have to have the courage to do the next right thing even though it's harder we don't want to but anyway i made the choice to i told him look man i respect and thank you for the offer it means a lot to me because i know what it means but i've chosen a different path and i'm going to stay on that path and the guy looked at me and he goes all right well just so you know we respect you and if anything happens we got your back and I looked at him and I said, you know what? I'll run independent, but I got you guys' backs too because it's a different world in there, John. And you have yeah, to understand yeah. that. But I got out of prison, bro, and it wasn't jailhouse religion. It was real. Like a trajectory for like really trying to reform my life had started and uh, uh, started going to church. And uh, that's what worked for me. I know that's not for yeah, everybody, yeah. but it's what worked for me. Being around a new network of people that had different plans and ambitions for themselves. Right. And I met my wife and we got married two years later and started a family. And that's how things traject. Now I don't want to like jump ahead on stuff. If you've got like <laughs> yeah, a yeah. pre-planned questionnaire, like how we're going, I, I, like I want I, it to I don't, format. Man. Good. No, yeah. I mean, uh, this is awesome. But it also speaks to, um, because, it, you know, if someone goes to say something, AA or, or some, some kind of um, group where they're trying to overcome addiction, very often they point to you, you need a higher power in your life. And there's something yeah. to that, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, both you and I are, are Christians and, you know, I think we both kind of go about it quietly, but there, there's something about having, um, having a, a belief in a higher power and, and um, that gives you a strength that you might not otherwise be able to find or, or have. Yeah. And so, so you're, you know, and, and really in one sense, it's like you've now got to this point in your life, you, you've broken the cycle, um, you, you've, you've got a wife, you've got a couple of kids. Um, in, I was kind of curious because you mentioned having having a son and uh, are you still in contact with the mother? Um, what, what, what's kind of happening there? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I actually was just texting her the other day because my my son with her, because obviously the woman I'm married to now is not that same woman. Right. We kind of both went different directions. But his name is Mordecai. I love him to death. He's pushing 18. Uh, No, he is 18. And he's definitely not going down the same path that I went, but he's skirting the line. And 
he's really hard to get a hold of. So I got his number and I'll text him and I got to pound and pound and pound on him. And then he'll finally call me and reach out and stuff like that. But um, we communicate and, you know, I did my child support and all that stuff and, and was faithful with that. And when we lived in Colorado, before we came up here, like I'd have him on the weekends and I was definitely a part of his life. Like he had a room at our yeah. house and everything like that. But she ended up moving to um, Wyoming one time and we moved to Texas so I could kind of start my career in the old field. And, like it turned into summers and Christmas rather than every week kind of a thing. But um, uh, yeah, no, I love him tremendously and I have high hopes for all my kids. And the, 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 the real kicker for when your kids are not doing well that I'm learning is you have to have perspective. As a father, it, it's good to go, okay, at least they weren't doing what, because I was shooting dope at 17, right? And right, the, yeah, he's yeah, nowhere yeah. near that, you know what I mean? And in and out of prison. But you have to understand that if you build this pain-free, tragedy-free, picture-perfect life for your kids. It's like how they say when a chicken's coming out of an egg, if you help it come out, it'll die. It has to fight to get out. And once it does, it's vibrant, healthy, and thriving. And I don't want to protect my son from having to go through like some hiccups in life because I know he's learning like, all right, this works, this doesn't work, you know, and this is where I need help and this is where I'm doing well. And I want to be a support for him and for anybody, but I don't get too hung up on the fact that, you know, it's so easy to try to live through them vicariously because I'm 43 now and I've learned all of this stuff on personal growth and development. And I want this 18 year old kid to live what I live today, right? But it took me going through 40 years yeah. to get to where I'm at today. So I got to keep all that in perspective and stuff. And just before we jump off the prison thing, I yeah. wanted to tell you just real quick, I remember when they called my name on the intercom. Um, uh, some prisons is just two men in a cell. The minimum security ones, they'll stuff 58 guys in a cell. And it's a big cell, obviously. Well, yeah, and, yeah. and you have a dorm. Yeah, basically, that's what it is. And, and they do that on purpose because they know everybody has short time. They're not trying to fight. They just want to get out so they can, like, trust having numbers and capacity like that. But still saw some crazy riots with guys fighting. But anyway, I remember when they called my name on the intercom. They're like, Chantos, pack it up. You're heading home, right? And there's that moment where everything you own, you give away. Because you're fixing to get out and hit a real cheeseburger and catch a ride home and see your loved ones, Right. So you give all your commissary away, you give all your stationery away, you give any books you have, you give everything away to your guys and there's a hug and you fold up all your laundry and your sheets, you drop it off and you take off. And I remember John being terrified. Now that's usually a day for people to rejoice, right? That's the, I'm getting out. But for me, I knew what I was going back to. Like all the stuff that we're protected by with the walls of the prison, and I know there's drugs in there, here and there and whatnot, but I mean, actually living in El Paso, one of the most narcotic diluted cities in America, cheap drugs and a, a whole host of variety of drugs. And I had no network. I had no, no foundation there. I had a little bit in me started, but I was going back to an environment that was so polluted. I was like, man, I do not want to go back and fall again. And I remember being terrified, but there was grace with me. And I got out and I went on my way and they put 30 of us on the bus to go because it's weird. You can live in El Paso, be at a prison in El Paso. And when you get released, they send you on a bus to Huntsville, which is a day and a half away, release you from there and you catch a Greyhound bus back to El Paso. It's like a complete waste of taxpayer money. They should have just opened the doors there. Right. (laughs) But I'm so 30 of us get on this bus and we're driving to Huntsville to catch the Greyhound home. And we stop halfway because it's a shift change for the guards. So we stop at a maximum security prison. Now they never put guys getting released into a maximum security prison in general population with the other convicts. Because when guys find out that have, you know, two or three life sentences stacked on top of each other that you're, oh, you're getting out? No, you're not getting out, right? And, you know, it's dangerous. So they so they put him in administrative segregation. So there was 29 available beds in administrative segregation. There was 30 of us on the bus. I'm the last guy getting off the bus. And guess where I got to go into general population? And I'm sitting at a stainless steel table. Um, 
and these three white boys come and sit next to me. Remember, you know, prison is very kind of racially diversified. It's just uh, yeah, cultural yeah. things separate people it's, that way. That's how it is. Yep. And they sit down and they start talking to me, and I'm like, uh, they're, they're kind of asking me questions, you know, about what I'm all about. And I and I just honest, I said, look, guys, I'm catching the bus home. Like there was no more beds in Adseg, and this is where I'm at. And uh, the guy's like, man, you ain't been around. And I'm like, no, I've been around, man. I've been to prison twice. I'm this, that, and the other. And I remember this huge white boy was like 280 pounds of just ripped muscle. He leaned over and he ran his finger behind my ear like this. And he goes, nah, you don't know nothing. You're still wet behind the ears. And it was like a very intrusive moment, you know? And like, uh, I started talking to him and the one guy just finished doing an 11 year sentence was out for six months and came back with a 10 year. The other guy had two life sentences and he couldn't start the second one until he finished the first kind of a thing, you know? And I think, I think, I think that higher power was telling me, look, this is where you're headed next. Like I'm, I'm giving you a glimpse into where your life is going if you come back to this place and i was like man i do not want to be here like i do not want any more of this you know is just i just thought you'd get a kick out of that story you know it's yeah. like uh no that that's powerful but mm. you managed to survive the night obviously yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah one eye yeah. open right <laughs> yeah no, no kidding man uh Mm-hmm. but that, that's quite a story and, and it, there's there's something about seeing that and just the contrast between what, what it is that you want so at this point how you're 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 leaving prison you're out for good as far as you know at this point in time yep. um you're how old you're 22 at this point 23 yeah 20 23 24 actually somewhere around there okay and and now where are you heading because do you have somewhere to live i mean right okay so they sent me they made a mistake because the six months prior to getting out i had tried to set up this parole transfer because my mom and dad had got separated two weeks before I got released from prison. And they were both okay. You know, you can come back home and start over again here in Colorado. They moved from Texas back to Colorado, which is where my mom was from. Okay, yeah, yeah. So nobody in my family lives in El Paso, Texas anymore. I'm getting released. I'm trying to get my parole transferred to Colorado so I have a place to go. And they mess up and send me to a halfway house in El Paso. And I'm panicking because the parole officer in Colorado is waiting for me to check in. And if I don't, within 24 hours, I'm violated. I'm going back to prison, right? <laughs> so I had this huge, like, strategic mess that I had to work out. But it, it all ended up getting worked out. And I was on a bus back to Colorado. And I moved in with my mom. And it was good, man. Like, I was more um, toned down. I had learned a few things. I, I, I was working. So I was helping her. And we were kind of support for each other there for, for a while. And I ended up, you know, getting a job and, and, and listen, John, like I, this is trivial for people, right? But when you're coming out of almost 10 years of drugs and incarceration and you've made a change and you're ready to go, you have to relearn how to be a father, a husband, an employee, hold a job, manage your money, stay sober, deal with stress, like from scratch. Like stuff that should have been taught in your youth and adolescence, you are now learning as an adult man. So there was this period of time where I'm like taking out high interest credit card loans because I've been out six months and I'm getting credit card offers now. And I'm wow, like I'm somebody now I'm getting credit card offers, you know, and made that mistake and yeah. you know got it got 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 the wrong job and got into an argument with an employee and got fired because i was still a convict in my mind you know and i lost that job okay that didn't work i don't want to do that again you know and so you're learning all these lessons as you go through life to try to get try to get to square one basically so to speak yeah now, now you're starting from like from like a deficit and um yeah do, when you're looking for a job did you have to publicly disclose that i have a criminal record I, it's on the application. They'll ask if you've ever, and some of them are a lot of these like minimum wage, you know, flip burgers at Wendy's or come work at a mulch factory. They don't even ask. They don't care. Right. Yeah. But there was a few jobs where I had to, and there were times when I would just leave it blank and I would make them ask me, why is this blank? And more often than not, nobody would even ask, but there was a few times cause I had a little bit of parole that I had to do after that. And I would have to disclose that. I'd be like, listen, man, I'm on parole. Uh, I need to leave early on Wednesday so I can go see my parole officer, you know. And for construction stuff and oil field stuff, it's almost like par for the course. 
that rough tumble kind of masculine, you know, like, okay, like we did stuff when we were kids too. We just didn't get caught. Like we'll, we'll give you grace kind of a thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't hinder me for anything that I needed to do. I didn't have a degree. I wasn't trying to get a job as a nurse or mortgage lending or anything like that, where you would need to disclose something like that. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you're, you're able to kind of get your life back on track and, and, um, yeah. from the time that you got out of prison, how long was it until you met your, your now wife? Right. So I think six months she was going to college in a neighboring town and her parents went to this church that I had been going to and I knew them and she would come back for like spring break, Christmas, summer, things like that. And I'd get to see her and then she wouldn't be there anymore. And I'd be like, wow, that's weird. Where'd she go? And I found out she was going to college. But um, on one of her visits back, I had asked her if I could take her out for a date. And of course, I asked my pastor first, hey, what do you think about this girl? Should I pursue this? And he's like, I think it would be good, but you should ask her father because that's the right way. That's not something you would have done 10 years ago. But if we're right, being yeah. true to this new trajectory that you're on, you should ask her dad. So I asked her dad and he's like, yeah, that's totally fine. You can ask her. But a lot of guys have and she's turned them all down. So <laughs> I don't know what it was. I asked her for just one day, just come have dinner with me. And yeah, made a complete, yeah. I made a complete fool of myself, John. Like I had no social <laughs> skills whatsoever. We sat down to this fine Italian cuisine. And right before we started eating, I'm like, you know, I'm going to preach the gospel one day. I'm going to be a pastor and I need a pastor's <laughs> wife to be by my side. And she was like, okay, like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she said that she loved just listening to me talk like, uh, about just whatever, you know, and I don't know. It's a God thing, bro. That's all I'm going to say, man. Like, I don't yeah, I yeah. know. Like looking back now, I'm like, I don't even know how I landed this woman. She's never drank, never <laughs> smoked. She's never cussed. She's, yeah. she stepped on the platform on her wedding night, pure as the wind driven snow, took the purity ring off her finger, gave it to her father, kissed him on the cheek and stepped up on the stage and became my bride. Again, pure as the wind driven snow. And like a lot of people don't get that. And if you didn't get that, it's not a big deal. I'm not saying like yeah, it yeah, had yeah. to be that way, but like I got an amazing woman and she worked so hard and um, she's an easy keeper. And for me, that's good because I'm stupid sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and obviously, obviously, before you get married, she she had, at some point had become aware of your past. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I got to testify about it, so to speak, in a church setting about this is where I was and like, this is where I am now. And, you know, grace can do amazing things in a person's life. But what got her, John, what got yeah. her is and she tells me and, and uh, she tells me today my passion for the things of God at yeah. that point was so genuine and intense, like living a gospel centered life. Right. Yeah. And she had, she wanted that. She's like, if I ever marry a guy, he's got to be that. Cause if I'm going to have kids with that guy, I want my kids to grow up in that kind of a thing. You know what I mean? And we would be on a date and I would see somebody holding a sign in the middle of the night, like on the side of the road. And I would literally pull the car over, tell her to wait in the car and I would go to that person and I'd hand him a track and I'd sit and talk to him, tell him where I'd been and God can change their life. And, and my wife would just like, I'm on a date with my wife, like my soon to be wife. <laughs> yeah. And I leave her in the car to go witness to somebody about how God can change their life, so to speak. You know what I mean? And she just saw intensity and genuine love for Christ. And that's kind of what, that's kind of what saved me on all of my other faults <laughs> for real. But no, yeah. it's been good, man. And so, and, yeah. and, you know, part, part of between the before and after is, I mean, and you've done a really phenomenal job of telling your story and I really appreciate your willingness to be open and share like this is, this is, uh, this has been fantastic. Cause I, man, I'm like, I got tons of questions. I could keep, keep this going. We're, we're, we're going to wind down shortly here, but I do have a couple more things I wanted to touch on, Okay, you know, because people, people will see where you're at now. Um, you know, you, you've got apex masculinity as well as you, you got, you have a full-time job, um, in, in the oil field, but you're also mentoring, um, other, other like young men or troubled men, uh, men who maybe didn't have a father figure in their lives and so on. And so they, they, they see where you're at now and you've made this powerful, powerful transformation in your life. And, um, sometimes when we see that, we might get this idea that like, you know, everything's tickety-boo or, or whatever expression you want to use. So yeah. what do you, what's, what's still a struggle for you? And, you know, is there, 
you, you know, do you recognize maybe there's some deficits from early like childhood drug use kind of thing that, that, that are still potentially present there? Yeah. So like you said, man, it's, you know, the social media life can be presented in a way to we can make ourselves look anyway. You know what I mean? I'm Mr. Yeah. Apex masculinity and I've got it all boxed in and figured out. But there are definitely battles that rage on. Like I said, man, sometimes I still wake up in the middle of the night and I don't know where I am and I'm wondering who's trying to kill me. You know, there's moments where I get so bogged down in the monotony of life and I feel even though I have all of these like clearly defined successes, like file cabinet evidence successes with, uh, you know, being a homeowner, being married 14 years to a beautiful woman, having kids, you know, making 30 bucks an hour in the overtime with 40 after 40 hours and we're doing like 70 and knowing how to run all this specialized equipment and having a published book that helps men become better men and having a podcast where I bring on experts that like talk about being a better person and, you know, having a life coaching business. And you would think that there's never dark days, but it's not the case. And I, and I don't know if I, I don't know if I wish it wouldn't be the case because I had to go through all of that to be where I am today. And some of that baggage lingers like, when I'm feeling, when I'm feeling purposeless, even though, like I said, I went over that list of accomplishments, but mm -hmm. there are some days where I feel like I'm not having any impact, you know? And when I get like that for me, that's a trigger for me. I get in a place of despair or discouragement. And like we talked about earlier in the warm-up chat, the neural pathways of the brain that were created during the drug usage in my adolescence, my brain will never forget that. My brain knows that the fastest way out of emotional turmoil is to put a sharp syringe in my arm full of methamphetamines. My brain will never forget that. My brain right. knows that a stiff drink or whatever, or you know, uh, a, a wild off the map uh, porn hub evening to release dopamine levels in my brain will take away any pain that I have because the dopamine basically alleviates that right yeah these are the the hyper stimuli that exist in our modern society that that maybe never existed before and there is no like natural substitute for those things you know when you look yeah. in the brain of an addict and, it, and it's like you know once an addict always an addict because as you said these things happen at a at especially like a crucial developmental time yep. in your life and they're they're almost like yeah. they're hardwired in your brain and it's almost impossible mm -hmm. not to and so, you know, when you're, when you're facing struggles like this, how do you, how do you find your way out? Gratitude is one. I have to be able to, as they say, count your blessings, like the old hymn goes, to stop and go over all of the good things that have gone on, the good things that are going on, the good things that are coming up in the future, because we all have dreams and plans. Also, gratitude for the things that happened in the past that were not so good, because I am now leveraging them to do a good work today. Also taking extreme ownership of your own life, being willing to say, all right, look, I could very easily go off the map, fall off the map and go on a deep dive to a negative dark place. But I am responsible as a man. I wear many different hats. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm an employee. I'm a, I have a mortgage. Like I have a life coaching business, all these different things. And I have to take ownership of all of those and realize that if I go down that dark path, I'm going to fail those obligations that I have to be the best version of myself in every arena that I have as a man, right? Also, not giving myself over to comparison syndrome. Okay, oh, yeah. these are, and these are outlined in the book. These are out, these are just a few of these, like bullet points. But comparison syndrome, where we look at someone else and go, you know what, man, my life is good enough. I can relapse here. Or I can relapse there and still be okay because at least I'm not like that guy over there who's like still in prison and still strung out on heroin. Like, no, you cannot compare yourself to someone else's life yes, to try to make absolutely. you feel better about yourself and the relapses or the toxic decisions that you make today. Also having realistic expectations are what helped me. I have to yeah. be realistic and know, look, there are going to be dark days that come and there's no way around it. Like you cannot build a wall around your life to prevent yourself from trauma and tragedy. Like even as an adult, and we try to do that, it seems like in, you know, civilized society where, 
you know, if I just make enough money or if I just find the right person or if I just do this, I can build this perfect little wall, this hedge around myself and my family, and there'll never be any trials or tribulations that come our way. And then you get that report from the doctor about your cancer issue or that loved one yeah. gets hit in a car accident and passes away or something like that. And then you, you're not prepared. You have to be realistic and know that dark days are going to come and it's okay when they come. It's you just know, how you handle it moving forward. Go ahead. No, I think that's, that's so um, powerful that you share that because, um, you know, you know, I, I obviously I'm, I operate in a slightly different arena and maybe not to the same degree, you know, helping people. But I work with people um, around weight loss. And of course, right. I always say weight loss is the cover story, right? Because there's always so much more going on in somebody's life when they're carrying around excess weight. Yeah. But I think we paint this idea in our head that when I get to this point, whatever arbitrary point that is in the future, when I get to that point, my life is going to be easy. And yeah. that just sets us up for disappointment because it's like, yep. there is no point in life where it's going to get easy. What's going to be like different it. though, is you are going to be stronger and you are going to have better tools. You are now equipped to navigate what life throws at you. And in fact, you know, I, I say, I have never met a remarkable person who had an easy life. And so maybe we shouldn't be asking for life to be easy, but right. we should be asking for the strength to, to navigate all the hardship that life will send our way. And that's how we become a, a remarkable person. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's good to also build yourself little windows where you get away from everything mm -hmm. and have a moment where there's just peace and quiet, like a vacation where phones are off, stress is off, all that stuff, get recharged. And just like Spartans, man, put that mask back on and let's get back to living life yeah. and doing stuff because the, 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 the more success you want, it seems like the more obstacles you invite into your life to get that success. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, no, it's good stuff, man. I know we're running up against the clock. I don't want to, I don't want to go over, but, um, yeah, I really appreciate you giving me the platform to share some of this stuff. Thank absolutely. you. And, and, and Leon also commented, uh, your story is awesome, Nick. And, and thank you Leon, for Leon for, for sharing that. So maybe we'll just, we'll finish up on this, this point around masculinity because okay. I'm, I'm quite passionate about this as well. I feel yeah. like masculinity gets a, maybe it's maybe in, in one sense, we could say a deserved bad rap. But right. I don't like that it gets a bad rap because, because uh, you know, you've used this word toxic, and I understand that the term toxic masculinity that exists out there and it exists for a reason because of male behavior that is toxic. Yeah. But very often, I don't know that we have an alternative that's often presented to us. Like, what is positive masculinity, or or in the case of of what you're doing here, apex masculinity, and right. so. What what does uh, you know manhood and apex masculinity mean to you, and what is it you're trying to help men to to become? Right, and that's the key word that you use there when you said what does it mean to you? Because I, in my research, have like read 16 different things from 16 different people on what toxic masculinity is, and it really goes back to whatever that person suffered. But what for me, apex masculinity is not about chauvinism and dominance. It's not about I'm the man and I want my dinner on the on the table at six. And I don't right, care about yeah. anybody else's feelings and I'm not sensitive to anybody else. Apex masculinity is about taking full ownership of your traumatic past, leveraging it to build an amazing life. It's about taking full ownership of every obligation that you have as a man. If you're a father, work on being the best father that you can be. If you're a husband, learn how to know your wife and be sensitive to her. And it's not about she should just be grateful because I'm floating the bills and I make this great oil field money and therefore right, I want right. my socks folded a certain way and in the drawer a certain way. She has her own dreams and her own ambitions and her own aspirations and her own fears and her own, you know, all of that stuff. And I need to partner with my wife and be a support for her just as she is for me. It's about being a better employee. If you're an employer, be good to your people. Like, don't just use them as tools to make you money, but invest in those people so that they can grow in their craft and their trade. If you're just an employee and you have new people come on, teach them things. Don't be like this us four and no more. If you want to learn this trade, you better keep your eyes open kind of thing. Take guys under your yeah, wing. Yeah. Show them how to work equipment. Show them how to do the job. 
be instant in season and out of season to like be a friend to people. And I know work is different than home and we're there to make money and we got to do a job, but you end up spending more time with your coworkers than you do with your family often. At least I do. And those relationships need to be forged. So husbandry, fatherhood, employer, it's about managing your money better and not being impulsive. It's about figuring out what your triggers for toxic choices are and mitigating those triggers as best as you can. It's like a whole package of learning yourself and value adding out unto other people as you grow and mature as a man. And that's what it is for me. And I think I think you just highlighted something really, really important here. It's like in, in order for you to be able to help other people, you had to go through these growth experiences yourself. Yeah. You know, um, and this is what makes you authentic is that, you know, you're not you didn't just read a book about this stuff, because I'm sure there's people out there that might you know occupy the life coaching sphere who have maybe read books about this stuff and 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 so on. You've, you've lived all of this and you've overcome it. And that allows you insight into men's experiences that other people would have no idea what this is actually like. You have the 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 lived experiences and, and you live with the struggle daily, but you have the tools, you have the support um, in, to, to, and the strength really to get through all of this. And because of that, this is what has made you the man that you are today. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I made a decision when I published the book that I was going to mail copies of that book every month to prisons inpatient rehabs all across the because it's in english the english-speaking world so i'm systematically mailing copies of the book out i sent one to the uk last month i sent one to australia i've sent out a bunch to prisons in the united states and i joined a prison wives support group on facebook and the wives are already messaging me telling me their husband got the book and it is having great impact in their life and i'm doing that at my cost in the beginning, I was like, all right, I made a book. Maybe I can make a living out of this. And I realized, you know what? You're not Stephen King. You're not going to write four books mm-hmm. a year and make millions of yeah, dollars. Yeah. But why don't you focus on adding value? And then we'll worry later about the financial end of it. So I just mail them out. And the and the stuff I'm getting back that it's helping, it it's humbling, bro. It's yeah. humbling. Yeah. No, that, that's that's absolutely incredible that you're, mm-hmm. you're doing this and having that kind mm-hmm. of impact. And, and there's going to be a, definitely going to be a spillover effect from that, which is really powerful. So... Um, I really want to thank you again for, for coming on to the show today, for, for being so open, for being so vulnerable, and also for giving people hope, because I think that's the other part of it. We want to tell compelling stories. We want to tell, uh, you know, unfiltered stories in a sense, but we also want to give people hope. It's, you know, we don't want to, you know, in, in telling this story, we don't want to glorify the, the thing, the past that you had. That's not really the point, but really to say right. that even from a past as difficult as you have had, you've been able to get to this point in your life. and. Yeah when we see those stories of hope, it gives us hope that whatever struggles that we're facing, that we have something within us, within the human spirit that will allow us um, to, to rise above the struggles that we face. Right. Absolutely. I like it, bro. Thanks for having me on, John. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, maybe I'll give you a chance for, for one last word of wisdom. If you were to condense a piece of wisdom into a nutshell, you would like to share with the world, what would that be? Anyone can come from any place of brokenness and destitution and build an amazing life. I love that. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for for tuning in. And uh, let's have an awesome week ahead. Take care, and uh, we'll chat again soon.